We have a, uh, a semi-normal cast here with uh, Tim Cutler in Vanuatu and Nick Skinner now in in Denmark. And just a quick little message about our good friend Daniel Beswick, who we all know was in India covering the World Cup, has had to make a mad dash back to Australia with a fairly serious family issue. So it's more than likely we're not going to be hearing from Bez for a little while, but we send our love to him as he and his family deal with this terrible time. But... Uh, Big love to you, Bez. It's been a big week in our cricketing world. Cricket is finally back in the Olympics. We have the Netherlands performing well in the Men's Cricket World Cup with two associate member victories over four members in one-day internationals in a single day. We've got Argentina breaking records this week. We've got action in Asia as we get closer to the Men's T20 World Cup. And we've got... Women's cricket around the world, Scotland playing Ireland, Namibia playing UAE and action in Africa. Welcome, Nicholas. How is Denmark? Denmark's nice. I've been cycling quite a lot, so I feel like I'm <laughs> I'm getting very fit just uh, just getting to work every day. Um, but uh, yeah, very lovely city, Copenhagen, one of the top cities in the world in terms of urban design and uh, yeah, very, very much enjoying that. Um, but yes, as, as you say... Um, Thoughts are with Bez and his family in in this tough time, and um, yeah, we we wish you all the best. Copenhagen, have you linked up with any of the the cricketers there yet? I know that uh, every time we run into them in a tournament, they're always like, oh, quick stop in, stop in, it'll be a good time. Have you have you seen anyone yet? No, actually, although Rod's suggested a gentleman who's uh, basically he's, uh, it seems like his uh, hobby is filming the domestic cricket here, and he's, he's got a YouTube channel, and uh, you can see a lot of uh, domestic. Danish cricket being streamed on this guy's YouTube channel. So I might try and get in touch with him because that could be a useful asset for the EC team, um, having having an outpost here in Scandinavia. But uh, unfortunately, no uh, uh, no meetings with cricketers just yet. No, well, we'll have to we'll have to sort that out. You mentioned Rod. It was great to hear him two weeks ago with the Dutch preview. But uh, we'll get to the Dutch performance shortly. But uh, I did enjoy PDP's short visit last week and we always get him at the best times don't we uh, just within the seconds before he had to leave his Airbnb how was PDP last week yeah well as you say uh, the only reason it was only half an hour was because that's the only time he had before he had to leave his <laughs> Airbnb but uh, yeah great to talk about the uh, America's qualifier which um, <laughs> thankfully Canada managed to scrape their way out of uh, despite a, a shocking start but uh, I'm not necessarily filled with confidence going into the World <laughs> Cup you know, the ingredients are there, I think. Oh, for, you for feel a lot better than how it could have been. I was watching it. I was trepidatious. I was on edge for you, Nicholas, just knowing that how you ride them. Uh, so you've been in the edge of the seat stuff. But uh, no, that was, uh, I think, a, a, a collective exhale, um, especially how they've performed over the last few years across both 50 and 20 over cricket. I wouldn't have said it was a fait accompli, but you would have thought they would have made a little easier on themselves. But anyway, the top line headline news this week is cricket is in the Olympics, or as you'll hear, it's back in the Olympics. It was played in 1900 during the Paris Games when an English team came over and played against a bunch of expats that had been residing in Paris, and that counts as Olympic cricket. Be that as it may, cricket is back. It is in LA 28. I think anyone that's listened to this podcast for any period of time has heard us wax lyrical about the advantage and the amazing opportunity that the Olympics provides for the growth of the game beyond our major countries. We've heard interviews with Matt Featherston from Brazil, um, Fabio, president of um, Italy Cricket, and we're talking 
funding in the hundreds of thousands, over half a million US thousand dollars going to each of those countries as soon as cricket is in the Olympics. It's huge. And that's just two examples that we've spoken to. Nicholas, how do you feel about it? I, I, I can't believe it's actually happened every, every step of the way. They're meeting, they're voting on things, they're voting on whether to have a vote, they're going to take the vote to the next vote. You know, it, it was a long process. And at every step of the way, I just kept feeling like, you know, the ICC is going to stuff something up for sure. We've we've heard so many, uh, you know, so much chat about it, so many promises for so many years, um, and and it's finally here. And and of all places, it's going to be in LA. So that's that's kind of a surprise. And just looking a little bit further ahead, if it's in in LA, and then the next games are in Brisbane, you'd think that's you know a, a relatively easy sell to Brisbane to get cricket into the Olympics for 2032, and then. Who knows? Maybe India will be hosting in 2036. So then you could have three in a row, and it's really bedded down. So I think there's a reason to be hopeful for a change, which is which is nice. And the, the big thing about the Olympics is, I mean, yes, as you allude to, funding for sure. So many countries have government funding for sports just gated behind Olympic inclusion for the sport. And uh, you, you mentioned the interview with Matt Featherston from Brazil, and and he talked in that interview about how you know cricket Brazil would would go and try and try and get interest in in local government or schools or, or what have you. And the first question they get asked is uh, is cricket in the Olympics? And as soon as he says no, the the interest just disappears. So that is multiplied across so many countries. So it, it's definitely going to be a huge. Uh, a huge improvement for a lot of associates and not just in terms of the money, but the eyeballs and just getting the sport of cricket, even if, yes, there's a very small chance that associates will be able to qualify because I, I think what we're hearing at the moment is six teams, uh, similar to the baseball last time in Tokyo, uh, which, I mean, it, it actually wasn't a bad tournament in the end, that, that six-team baseball tournament. So, yeah, six teams, you, you'd want more, but as a starting point, I, I think it's fantastic. And... Just uh, as as a sort of personal anecdote, I'm an example of the the power of getting sports in front of new eyeballs because <laughs> during you know during the long lockdowns and and you know watching the Olympics and Brooklyn and I we both got really enthused by the rock climbing the the indoor rock climbing events and we thought they were a lot of fun and I'm currently a member of a climbing gym here here in Copenhagen and um, I I think actually the Olympics has had a big impact because there's a lot of people in the climbing gym who are saying that they're like pretty new to the sport and, and that they, they saw it at the Olympics and they got interested. So it's hugely powerful in terms of just putting the sport in front of a bunch of new eyeballs. So there's the funding, there's the advertisement for the game, and there's the kind of soft power legitimacy of, of having uh, Olympics inclusion on, you know, on your brand. Craig White is another one um, from Mexico. He talks a lot about how in Mexico, basically for sports not in the Olympics, it, it might as well not exist. So um, I, I think it just, there's there's no way you can overstate how important this is for the sport. Yeah, so many examples of that. And I kind of get a little bit frustrated and I see people reply to tweets about the Olympics saying, oh, cricket's already a major sport. It doesn't need to be the Olympics or, you know, there's already enough sports and all these things. It just, I think we almost need a boilerplate um, take deck to, uh, to reply to all of these, just how much it means to so many associate members. And, and beyond it's not just associate members we're talking about well the legitimacy of the sport in so many other places that are not ICC members in, in you know even as I look sort of southwest of here New Caledonia and to the north you know Solomon Islands uh, etc that 
if they're looking to get cricket going again, the fact that it's now in the Olympics will make things a lot easier to talk to countries like that. But as you mentioned, the, the, the funding and the eyeballs and my time you know, now across two associates uh, have varying positions and advantages. Here there isn't as much money in um, and funded to the National Olympic Committee here, so it's more going to be their assistance with us accessing the IOC Solidarity Fund and other scholarships and, and funding. But if you look at somewhere like Hong Kong, and again, the legitimacy of the sport is determined by its inclusion in the Asian Games and the Olympics, and then the access that is then provided to um, Olympic and, and national sporting facilities. And I think that uh, Matt Featherston at length talked about that too, about the access that that gives them there as well. So it's not just money in the account, it's also the, the chance to, to get access to facilities that you wouldn't have got to otherwise and especially for those lower associates that are funded you know in the tens of thousands rather than in the hundreds of things they wouldn't have been able to afford or they'd be begging for in the past is huge and you you mentioned the the fact it's going to be a well the fact of the proposal is it's for a men's and women's six team event Um, I think it's probably the first time ever I'm going to say that I don't care about the format of the game that's going to be in the Olympics the fact it's T20 makes it a lot easier because again places like Hong Kong and others the funding is linked to that particular format so as much as certain individuals are out there shilling the advantages of playing t10 at the olympics um, it doesn't make sense <laughs> from a global and i won't mention any names um, but um, surprised we didn't hear them popping up funny that isn't it but i wonder if we, we won't hear that from Maybe certain, check hasn't come certain former players when they're commentating for the t10 event that's linked to that particular format but yeah the the format of the tournament itself is i won't, won't say it's irrelevant because we want people to, to be watching the, the sport in its best form and i know people say well you know football's played under 23s and blah blah blah, blah just, but you know this is actually a chance for us to grow the game and it's actually the, the the benefits beyond cricket and also the chance that people in america and hopefully olympics in the future as you mentioned will be watching the best playing against the best for the number of athletes that we can have but for me there's a real possibility now with the runway that we have until 2028 of the ICC whether it happens or not I guess we'll find out but of having a really cool qualifying structure for this I know we want India and Pakistan to be at the at the Olympics for the numbers that <laughs> the IOC is going to do. So I think someone I should... I think that's re- why the IOC put them in. <laughs> someone should record this now because this is me saying, I want India to be playing Pakistan at the Olympics in, in LA 28 because that will get the numbers the IOC wants. And then likewise, when Australia hosts, then at least they'll get a, an automatic Guernsey. But what I'm getting at is you can have a really cool qualifying structure for this. And I'm not saying that we throw out the T20... World Cup structure that we have, but now that we know that we got the Olympics in 2028, it gives the ICC to to relook at things. And I know they've already sold a media rights suite that that runs almost as far as that. You're thinking about how you qualify for this. Yeah, okay, you might have a tournament that only has six teams, but that doesn't mean we can't have a global regional qualification structure and tournament that will engage so many more countries than we might usually see so that's just a little thought bubble there but yeah i hear what you say about sports that that draw people in that they they wouldn't normally and i know that a lot of people will bring comparisons to usa 94 for the forthcoming tournaments both being the men's t20 world cup in 2024 but now the olympics in la 28 i'm not quite sure that the olympics are going to have the same effect of having a football world cup as it did and knowing how 
broadly football or soccer as we'll call it there is it was played there anyway but there's here's a real opportunity to get in front of the world's biggest sporting market so i don't know it's just tick 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 and we do question or challenge some of the the icc's uh, decisions and motives sometimes and i know even back in 2020 when we interviewed uh, will glenwright about this and he said that the, the olympics weren't an, an immediate priority um it shows that there was a lot of work going on in the background and I'm guessing there was a little bit of company line there of just keeping perhaps everybody's excitement levels uh, low and making sure that the right things were being said behind closed doors and look, it's, it's work. So well done to well, so the working group that was working on this with the, with the ICC and also to the members that have changed their mind on this because don't forget it was only a, f- a few years ago that both mm. the BCCI and England were staunchly opposed to cricket in the Olympics um, and that stance has now changed and you've got to say there's a well there's a greater good at this as part of the decision but also from India's point of view if this means that the IOC is going to be earning hundreds of millions of dollars from the TV rights into India you'd like to think that that's going to be getting back to the BCCI somehow as well uh, and likewise sort of through the Indian government so you not trying to sound too cynical here, but only to say that the outcome of this is cricket in the Olympics and something that we've been talking about for a long time. And I think there's a lot of people, two little podcast hosts included, that are looking at their calendars in 2028 and thinking that uh, it might be worth a trip to the west coast of the United States of America in uh, in mid-2028. Nick, what do you reckon? Well, <laughs> you, you, well I'm, I'm torn here because... Um... After a very unpleasant experience in LA, I uh, decided that I would never go back there. But um, I mean, if cricket's going to be in the Olympics, that's that just makes it a tough decision, doesn't it? Maybe if maybe if Nate makes a trip too, I'll, I'll have to I'll have to visit. Well, I, I will take you back to a conversation um, about five years next week, uh, five years ago, when we started a oh, WhatsApp chat group, <laughs> and uh, we said, uh, "How about I got an idea? Uh, you guys." love this associate cricket thing like this idea about emerging cricket so yes yeah it's our five-year anniversary in uh, in 10 days time uh, or there or thereabouts when you um listen to this however that was uh 29th of october 2018 and almost 10 years after that cricket will be in the wow. olympics so if that doesn't create a reason for emerging cricket to be at the la 2028 olympics then i don't know what does you're twisting my arm <laughs> <laughs> i know you made a vow a blood vow but um so i don't know i guess we better start fundraising now you know first class flights that's what happens isn't that what everybody mm, well that's that's how all the uh, all the icc officials travel around no comment nicholas no comment this is we're, we're happy we this is a this is a happy yes, moment yes. anyway they deserve all the first-class flights they can. The cricket's in the Olympics. Look, it's, I've got a smile on my face, and it's it's rare to have such a smile, despite, you know, well, I guess other times when I've, you know, Vanuatu winning through and whatnot, I think I, I this is this is a happy... This is this is a happy podcast to me. Mm. Oh, and look, I've criticised Jay Shah a lot, not least for the fairly shambolic uh, organisation of, of the current Cricket World Cup, which we'll get to in a second, but... The fact he's got out of the way, at least, uh, I don't know how heavily he's pushing it, but he's at least got out of the way in in terms of the BCCI's stance towards the Olympics, and that's made the difference. So, you know, good good on him and good on the BCCI for letting it happen. There we go. I think we'll put that on a plaque and we'll we'll send it to Mumbai. Nick? <laughs> I, look, I, I I I try to be at least somewhat fair. I, you know, the... 
Samoa. I like how you say Samoa. <laughs> anyway, um, look, look, this is, I don't know, this has got to be one of the sort of happiest. And it, look, thinking about Bears as well makes it a lot. It's uh, it's not not a happy situation, but in terms of from a cricketing news, it, it doesn't get much better than this. I think uh, once we get the Women's World Cup to 20 teams and uh, we start moving forward even more when we, when we know more about the the funding model next year from the new pot of gold that's at the end of the uh, meteorites rainbow. Um, things are things are looking good. And if you're looking for orange in that magic rainbow, you'd be thinking about the Netherlands and their nice amazing segue, performance <laughs> two days before as we record here with them recording a historic 50-over victory over South Africa in Men's World Cups. We know that they beat them a year ago in the T20 World Cup, so I guess it is only fitting that they have now defeated them in a men's 50-over World Cup. Netherlands 2.45 for 8, scrambling to 2.45 for 8 after struggling, being 6 for 112, 7 for 140, A amazing captain's knock from Scott Edwards, 78 not out of 69 balls to get Netherlands to that total. And then, well, you'd have to say a clinical bowling performance from the Dutch to bowl South Africa out for 207. Nick, I know you sat, well, this is a lot better timing for you. Uh, I was asleep. So uh, what do you make of it? Yeah, I saw the end of the Netherlands batting the the last sort of uh, eight overs or so. Um, some amazing hitting. Don't don't forget Ian Dutt there hit three huge sixes. Just absolutely smashed it over Cow Corner off the fast men. And Rula Fundamova as well, 29 off I think about 15 balls or something. And um, some amazing shots. I don't know if you saw the... the there, was, there was one where he sort of looked like he was going to ramp paddle it and then he he copped a yorker and then he mid shot swapped to like a little dab off his feet and and <laughs> went for four he I, I don't know why this guy's batting so far down the order it's i mean he's he's still got it and then Rulof come comes out with the ball as well and just bowls through the middle keeps the pressure on and you know he picks up two quick wickets to start the collapse and then um <laughs> just keeps it really, really tight. I think he, yeah, he went for 34 off his nine overs and, and really kept the pressure on. Didn't really provide any opportunities to score. Only one four and one six off his entire spell. And yes, I mean, he would have been a good candidate for player of the match, although Scott Edwards picked up the gong and, and entirely fair enough as well. Um, just the quintessential Scott Edwards knock, really. Coming in with, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the top orders uh, got him into a bit of a spot of bother. Uh, comes in completely unflappable, uh, just, you know, do- goes about his business, sweeps like a maniac, swats the fast men for six, uh, you know, he's he's very inventive with his shot selection, um, picks the gaps expertly, runs hard, helps as well, uh, rule off in that, that partnership there that, that rule off uh, also runs like a maniac, so <laughs> the, the two of them are, are very well suited uh, as, as running partners, um, so that that was just a very fun partnership to watch. And then, yeah, so a pretty challenging total in a rain-reduced match. As you say, 245 for eight in 43 overs. And then, um, you know, marshals his bowlers expertly. We, uh, you know, in, in our preview, Rod and I discussed uh, that, you know, the Scott Edwards captaincy era started less than a year ago, but 
he's it looks like he's been doing it for a long time already and he he's just so adept um both in terms of uh, field placements and you know shuffling the balls around he seems to have a plan for every batter he's able to think on the fly uh he you know if a batter seems to be getting on top you know, he's very proactive which is something that I really like about a captain because um, especially if you're a you know a lower ranked team trying to cause an upset you need to be proactive you need to be trying to exploit every little opportunity and the thing you said their bowling performance was clinical this was something that we've seen the Netherlands get in good positions before with the ball you know against uh, against Pakistan in their super league matches against New Zealand as well against the West Indies at home too you know, they had them all at various points, sort of three, four, five down and under a bit of pressure. But then, yeah, they just they just let the pressure off. They, you know, the, they let the batters get back into it and uh, the match kind of slipped away. And this time they didn't do that. And it seems like it's, again, we keep saying it, but it, it keeps being true. The fact is that experience in the Super League is what's allowed them to learn from their mistakes. And, you know, now they're in this situation where they got South Africa four down for 40 odd. Uh, there was a little partnership brewing um, with with Klaassen uh, and Miller. You know, and then they picked up that wicket and, and then, um, you know, Miller's still hanging around and looking like he could explode at any moment. And But they didn't, you know, they held their nerve. They kept their lines. Um, as I said, Ruloff was keeping things tight. Uh, Paul van Makeren was bowling very well. Um, I actually thought Logan van Beek he picked up the big wicket of uh, of Miller in the end, so you know all is forgiven. But yeah, he he could have bowled a bit better. I think he was a bit wayward. So they even had you know space for a guy to not be bowling at a hundred percent. So yeah, very clinical performance with the ball, and they they didn't take the foot off the accelerator. They they didn't let South Africa back into the game, which was the big difference between some of the other matches where they've been in good positions. Yeah, well, I think. It's- for all of that that talk, it's, you mentioned the magic word, didn't you? It's like our magic word of the week, Super League. Yeah, remember that uh, and mm. the, and how good it, it could be and could have been and is now gone. I, I can only hope that these performances from the Netherlands especially and also Afghanistan, don't forget, we, we're not going to talk about Afghanistan's victory over England as, a, as an upset as others would be considering how well they did go in the Super League uh, matches that they were, they were drawn. They had the highest win percentage within the Super League so them beating anyone really isn't a, isn't an upset these days but to see how well the Netherlands have been playing and that's I don't think it's any accident that the team that came through that the Super League played really well in the qualifier to beat some full member nations to get here and is here but it's even better to see them bring that energy forward and do it's great to see the Netherlands play the way that they did they could have just batted out the overs and for a kind of a gracious loss because of it, they might have got to 200 or so and would, would that be defendable or, or not but the way that Edwards came out and batted and tried to win and to put themselves in a position to win and then the pressure that then put, puts on South Africa with the bat and then they come over the win. I think that's great for the Netherlands the Netherlands cricket in general but for people watching this saying well where is this Netherlands team? Why haven't we seen more of them? And yes, they've seen them in the T20 World Cup and, and, and at the World Cup qualifier, etc. We're thinking, well, we want to see more of this type of cricket. I'd say go one step further. It's not only great for perhaps a future Super League revival, despite what we're hearing from the MCC and Mark Nicholas, but I, I'll leave that to one side because that's probably a whole podcast in itself. <laughs> um, but I think that potentially, you know, the, the Netherlands are actually 
speaking more for ODI cricket than anyone else could of showing that there are all these countries out there playing at this level and that people are going to be excited to see this. We know the ebb and flow of 50 over game is a lot more than a T20 match just by you know, the length of the, the game itself. So this is this is great just for cricket in general. We know how important that longer form, you know, for a lot of countries, that's the longest format of cricket that is played, 50 overs. And if cricket was reduced only to uh, test matches and T20s as the, the MCC would seem to want and only play 50 overs in World Cups and how would we qualify for those World Cups then we, we wouldn't see this type of, of cricket being played so well done the Netherlands and good pickup well at least uh, highlighting by our good friend Andrew Nixon out there in the world of X formerly known as Twitter of noting that we had two associate members winning one day internationals against four members on the same day that with Scotland women beating Ireland in their series on the same day. And we'll talk about that briefly, but we'll have a move to Asia with men's cricket at the moment. Nick, we've got the ACC under-19s Premier Tournament going on with the top three from that going on to the ACC's under-19 Asia Cup with four members being part of that. And we've got a tri-series between Nepal, Hong Kong and UAE as they lead in to the Asian final. Yeah, as always, lots of cricket going on in Asia. It's, uh, it really is sort of the, the, the beating heart of cricket uh, these days. But yeah, the uh, men's under-19s Premier Cup, uh, which feeds into the under-19s Asia Cup. Once again, the ACC showing that it's the gold standard of regional bodies. Uh, 50-over under-19s tournament with 16 teams. Uh, you wouldn't get that from an ICC event, at least not any time recently. But yeah, so four groups of four. It's getting to the pointy end of the group stage in Group A. We've got the top of the table clash between Nepal and Saudi Arabia to come. Group B has United Arab Emirates taking on Qatar in their last match. And that's still with all to play for for Qatar. If they beat the UAE, they'll leapfrog Oman, who's currently in uh, second place but have played three matches. Uh, In Group C, we've got Singapore taking on Thailand on the last day. And if Thailand win that one, they'll leapfrog Kuwait, who are on three points uh, because they had a washout. And in Group D, Malaysia is taking on Indonesia and Hong Kong are taking on Japan. And Malaysia, Hong Kong and Japan are all uh, plausible candidates to make it through the next round. So uh, an exciting Group D over there, uh, Japan... Definitely want to keep an eye on their youth program has been impressive over the last little while. Um, And of course, the top two teams from each group progress to the knockout stages where the top three teams overall, so the two winning semi-finalists and then the third place team will be going to the under-19s Asia Cup. So yeah, a a very good tournament. Um, Nice that it's being played and nice that it's available to watch. You know, I was... um, I was able to just go on YouTube and just watch the matches. And, you know, there's something to be said for that in terms of, you know, making it accessible compared to we, I know we talk all the time about ICC TV being a mess, but, you know, 20 plus thousand people were were, um, on the stream for the Maldives versus Kuwait under 19s, you know, and what's that down to? It's just down to it being easily accessible and, you know, there's no barrier to entry. Whereas ICC TV, you have to set up your account and, 
it crashes all the time. Whereas, you know, YouTube, you just click on it, there it is. Same again, Oman and China, similar amount of uh, viewers for that match, which, I mean, honestly, you wouldn't expect that many people to watch the game because China really are not great. Although I, I, I will give a shout out to Kuwait's snazzy blue and red kit. I, I think it's a very nice. Yeah, but again, you, you know, the fact that you can just watch it, simple graphics, commentary, the scores there, everything you kind of want, just a pleasant viewing experience. Why can't we have that for all the pathway events that the ICC's broadcasting on its in-house streaming service, which, you know, I, I'd be surprised if a fraction of the amount who were on these, you know, under-19s regional matches were on any of the ICC TV stuff. Yeah, it's a tough one. I know that the, I'm not telling any state secrets, but the ICC did mention that we're, we should expect a ICC TV version 2 shortly that will be better integrated with the ICC website. But as you said, having a platform like YouTube that people already go to, to consume video content and I know that ICC have a deal with Meta which would probably mean that anything would have to be shown on Facebook but uh, yeah I think that would be a worthy conversation I know there's a lot of crossover with uh, ACC board members and, and ICC of comparing numbers just to show the difference in how many people you can have watching um, and interesting that you mentioned well you mentioned Japan there but Indonesia are also there and Japan and Indonesia are both members of the East Asia Pacific region as we've talked about in the past so it's great to see them there competing as equals as part of the ACC events you know we just had both countries here well the women's teams here in the East Asia Pacific regional qualify for the women's t20 world cup so it's great to see the the men's under 19s getting this experience and it kind of I, I don't think it's a question with an answer but just sort of wondering about the structure of these of these regions and, uh, and whether it's sort of fit for purpose mean that they can make these, these trips a lot easier and then we've got the sort of Pacific Cup going on as uh, as well but also knowing that the advantages they have in that, in that region it's good to see them taking that chance in this tournament um, and it's good to see as you sort of mentioned how well the stream is and just searching for it online a lot of the times you search for an ICC event and the first entry that comes up is a, is a Wikipedia article and lug nuts number seven I think on the on the most um, <laughs> most edits on on wikipedia with millions but uh watching how well they've got it out there and that people are reading it and that's why it's coming up higher in the in the google searches as well so i don't know it's it's not a matter of trying to be better than everyone sometimes you can learn from each other i think the icc might not have to look that far to see how maybe we can do just a little bit better with our pathway events and i mentioned the uh the men's well the open of matches going on with nepal uae and, and hong kong as they prepare for the men's t20 world cup asia regional final that tri-series with all matches except the final being played in mulpani with the final being played at tu nepal beating uae comfortably early on nick yeah interesting uh, little little warm-up tournament here ahead of the regional final uh, which I'm sure will be a very tough competition. But uh, yeah, yeah, UAE posted 140 in their 20 overs. Nepal chased it down with an over to spare. Rohit Padel with 50 not out. Pretty comfortable stuff. Uh, Karan KC in the wickets. And, uh, you know, the usual suspects, uh, Asif Sheikh in the runs. Yeah, I mean, the, the question for Nepal is kind of, are they going to be able to back up their record-breaking uh, performance against Mongolia uh, that that got a few tongues wagging uh, a couple of weeks back, um, and it seems like they've you know they've slotted straight back into playing teams you know of their level, and um, are, are doing very well. So it, yeah, it'll be interesting to see uh, how they go in the pr- tournament proper. But I don't, I don't think there's 
you know, cause for concern too much off one game for the UAE. Basil Hamid got some runs. Um, they're bowling maybe a little bit threadbare. I think they were experimenting a little with some fringe players. You know, Nilanch Keswani, who hasn't played that much for the for the senior team, and again Sanchit Sharma as well. Both kind of guys that that are sort of on the on the fringes of the national team usually. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they uh, experiment with their lineup, but. Looking forward to the tournament proper, the regional final, where there's only two spots left from Asia for the Men's T20 World Cup next year. You know, Group A, which Nepal will be in, has Malaysia, Oman and Singapore along with them. And Group B has Bahrain, Hong Kong, Kuwait, UAE. Kuwait, of course, have just come through the regional qualifier. They, a couple of weeks ago, they beat Saudi Arabia in a tense match in in the last day, and they they went through on net run rate. So, Kuwait rounding out the qualifiers for the regional final, and yeah, so it'll be another one of those matches where the semi-finals are the the deciding matches with the the top two teams from each group progressing to the semi-finals, and then the winners of each semi-final going straight to the World Cup. So, you've got the group stage, and then you've got the exciting winner-take-all knockout matches as well. So. The regional final should be well attended with Nepal playing all their matches at the TU ground, uh, sure to get a big crowd in, and yeah, Group B playing all their matches in Mulpani. So yeah, that's something to look out for uh, in, in a couple of weeks' time, matches getting underway uh, at the end of October. Well, you say to look out for, and I guess we'll also be listening for a very familiar Irish voice who I'm sure has mm. nerdled his way into a, uh, a lead chair spot in his favourite place in his second home of Nepal, our friend Andrew Leonard. Now, you mentioned that record-breaking performance of Nepal against Mongolia, of course, when they scored 314 for three, and, and numerous records were broken, in, including the fastest ever 50. It's almost impossible to be broken. Actually, it is impossibly broken by Dependra Singh Ari. But the Chilean women's team tour to Argentina has seen a record-breaking performance. Tell us about it, Nick. Yeah, I mean, basically all the records you could imagine. Um, the first 400-plus total in a T20 international, the highest individual score, which was 169 from Lucia Taylor. The first triple-century partnership with Lucia Taylor and Albertina Galan. Both of them scored a century in that match, the f- the first match of the series. Um, Galan with 145 not out to go with uh, Lucia Taylor's 169. The highest match aggregate of 490 for the match, eclipsing the previous record, which was set not too long ago, actually, uh, at North Sydney Oval between the Australian and West Indies women. That's despite Chile being bowled out for just 63. So, uh, yeah, one for 427 just a mind-boggling total for a T20 international, although assisted by some very uh, wayward Chilean bowling, the most extras in a T20 international, 73, uh, 64 no balls, which is also a record. The most runs conceded in one over, 52 runs from poor old uh, Florentia Martinez, and uh, the most runs conceded in, in, in a four-over spell, Constanza Ollarse with 92. Yeah. And then Argentina followed up with uh, 6 for 300 in the next match, bowling uh, Chile out for 19. And in the third match of the series, uh, 1 for 333, bowling Chile out for 22. So that's three consecutive 300-plus performances. Um, I mean, just a whole stack of records that... I think you're going to struggle to see beaten. Um, Maria Castineras 
with centuries on consecutive days, consecutive matches. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I actually don't know what's going on with this Chilean team because they played eight debutants across the three matches. New look squad, um, you know, they haven't exactly been very strong at America's level, but they weren't, you know, they weren't this bad. Uh, last time they played at the South American Championships, I, I think in 2019, they were sort of posting 70 and Argentina was chasing in, you know, 16 overs sort of thing. Um, so, you know, they were outplayed, but they weren't you know, absolutely pummeled in, in this way. And, you know, it's worth noting that Argentina recently got thrashed in the Americas qualifier by the US, Brazil and Canada and in a bilateral series by Brazil. So, you know, Argentina pretty far behind the the pack in terms of America's associates. So, yeah, I, I think a lot of the Chilean players are barely 15, so they're, they're playing a very, very young team. And I, I might I might try and dig around and, and see what's happened to the more experienced players who, um, who, who, who they were playing with a few years back because, yeah, it is a bit unfortunate to see... <laughs> I mean, it, it's interesting from a statistical perspective to sort of see these numbers put up but it must be demoralizing for for a team although you know uh, we saw one an ex-chilean player um who's actually a musician now uh, uh jeanette garces uh, with with a follow on on the platform formerly known as twitter but yeah she, she put up a, a thread you know trying to push back against feeling too sorry for them because um you, you know they're playing international cricket they're representing their country um, it, it's what they're, you know, they've, they've trained to do. They're proud to. So I, I think that's a fair perspective as well. But yeah, it would be good if they could get some of their more experienced players back as well. I would say. Yeah, it's a tough one. I sort of I don't want to sensationalise results like this as we've seen in the past with Mali, especially. And I'm, I've been slightly heartened by the fact that we haven't seen any negative chat out there about these countries being allowed to play cricket and whatnot. I don't know if that's because well, the men's World Cup's on and people are distracted, or people have accepted that. Other countries play cricket and sometimes there's a gulf in skills. But as you have rightly pointed out, the fact that you know this isn't Chile's first tournament and there might be something underneath, it probably means that it's great that these scores are out there for everyone to see and that maybe things can be highlighted and, and worked on and talked about as opposed to things hiding in the in the shadows. So I'm going to jump on there because hopefully we're not going to see any negative press out there that we have to try and respond to as we have in the, in the past about the result. We've had... Two series of women's bilateral matches that are interesting in their own right. Nick, we've got Scotland playing Ireland in one-day internationals and also Namibia touring the UAE. Both interesting in their own right in that, I guess, very much from my kind of Vanuatu point of view, as we look forward towards the Women's T20 World Cup qualify coming up in five or six months or so. And I know that Scotland, Ireland, ODIs are 50 overs, but Namibia UAE result was an interesting one. But how's this... Both as we look forward, because both are sort of historic or at least uh, interesting in their own rights. Yeah, the UAE uh, Namibia series slipped through the net. Um, it, it concluded early October, so it, it was a couple of weeks ago. But um, yeah, I mean, especially if you're Vanuatu, you're sort of looking around at that Africa qualifier, and you know whoever's coming out of that, they're going to be tough <laughs> when when you eventually come up against them at the global qualifier, and. You know, Namibia have just staked a pretty impressive claim, really, against... I mean, the UAE have been one of the more exciting women's teams uh, in, in the associate world over the last couple of years with you know, a lot of young, homegrown talent and pushing a lot of other teams. And Namibia won fairly comprehensively in four matches, and they lost 
pretty comfortably in two matches. So a 4-2 result away from home, um, playing at the, the Dubai International Cricket Stadium. Um, you know, some noteworthy performances. Yasmin Khan back in the runs as well. But uh, Wilkem Motile, who's sort of known more as a bowler, pushed up the order and, and in the runs, second highest run scorer uh, for Namibia in the series, which I thought was quite interesting. Um and yeah, Victoria Hamunyela is back in the team. Uh, eight wickets across across the matches. So yeah, you sort of some of the some of the usual names in terms of uh, batting and bowling. But you know they they seem to be coming into form at, at around the right time. Conversely, what does that say to the UAE? Have they been a bit complacent? I don't know. Um, it, it, the matches weren't broadcast as far as I know, uh, or at least I didn't see them. But. Uh, yeah, I think looking at those results, if I were Vanuatu, I would be getting pretty nervous if uh, if you have to come up against Namibia. And you mentioned also the Scotland uh, result against Ireland. Great stat there from Andrew Nixon, as always, coming up with some uh, with some gold. Two associate teams beating four members on the same day. That's, I mean, that's about as good as you can get from an emerging cricket perspective. But uh, an interesting, you know, it's, it's good that this series is being played. The the Scots are finally using their women's ODI status more than a year after it was awarded. Um, they've they finally actually played a match. So, <laughs> you know, that's something. And it's actually their first victory in ODIs for 20 years. Uh uh, another Nixon nugget. Uh, the last time they uh, recorded a victory in women's ODIs was 2003 against Japan. So yeah, congratulations. A usual suspects kind of kind of situation as well for Scotland. Catherine and Sarah Bryce in the runs, setting up a score of 211, and then Abtar Maxud picked up some wickets. Uh, a couple of uh, slightly lesser known names in Darcy Carter and and Hannah Rainey also bowling well and, and picking up some wickets. So uh, that's good to see that that they can bowl teams out without. Uh, Catherine Bryce taking all the wickets as well as scoring all the runs. So, um, you know, that's always good. But, uh, yeah, playing the next two matches on the 19th and 21st of October in the series. And uh, good luck to Scotland. Thank you, Nick. And it was good to get back on and chat to you again after, again, a little bit too long. But I think uh, my, the craziest six months ever with I've, I've been counting since the Cyclones in March. I've been to Fiji, Darwin, Durban, Honiara on the way to Port Moresby and to, to Australia a couple of times coming back. So I, I, for the first time, I don't have a, in a long time, I don't have any flights booked. So I can actually sit here and, and A, work, but also uh, hopefully <laughs> spend more time with you on the on the podcast. But thank you for everything you put to this as, as always. And thank you to everyone out there supporting us at Emerging Cricket, especially our patrons. And of course, you can support us at P- patron that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash emerging cricket from us two dollars a month that uh, help keep the lights on keeping our podbean account beaming our podcast out to the world and our website running and as always thank you to all of our volunteers and contributors that keep everything going i will leave it to you nick to give a, a little wrap on the way out but uh, everyone out there in the emerging cricket world hope your day is amazing and look forward to talking to you all, all again soon yes as you say tim a few more series that have just been run and done over the last little while uh, gibraltar have been very busy uh, they hosted estonia in a two-match t20 series uh, both matches played on the 30th of september uh, gibraltar won the first game by two wickets and estonia won the second by eight wickets um, so encouraging signs from Estonia who are still early on in their uh, men's T20I journey 
And then about a week later, Gibraltar hosted two matches against Serbia on the 5th of October. They won both of those by seven wickets. And again, in about another week's time, on the 15th of October, they squared the series one all. Uh, both matches again played on the same day against Luxembourg. Uh, they won the first match by 24 runs and Luxembourg won the second by 11 runs. So good effort from Gibraltar making use of their lovely stadium at Europa Sports Park, which uh, many people will probably have seen on various European cricket network matches elsewhere in men's cricket. And just to wrap up, the West Africa Trophy, which we mentioned last week. Nigeria did run out winners in the end, beating Rwanda by 17 runs. Good bowling performance from the Rwandans kept Nigeria to 103 for 7 in their 20 overs, but unfortunately the Rwandan batters couldn't really make a game of it and were restricted to 8 for 86 in their 20 overs with Joshua Asia, the main wicket-taker, 3-for-9 in his four overs. So congratulations to Nigeria on taking out the West Africa Trophy and, uh, as mentioned last week, a bit of a warm-up for the upcoming men's regional final with the top two teams going through to next year's T20 World Cup. That, of course, being hosted in Namibia from the 20th of November and involving Kenya, the hosts, Namibia, Nigeria, Rwanda, Tanzania, Uganda and Zimbabwe. Very tough field with only two teams progressing. Elsewhere in tournament play and the men's South American Championship is also underway. Being hosted in Buenos Aires, we have Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Mexico, Panama, Peru and Uruguay competing. So an eight-team event. The round-robin stage is split into two groups. The first group involving Argentina, Mexico, Chile, and Peru. And the second group involving Uruguay, Colombia, Panama, and Brazil. The matches are being played between the 18th and 21st of October. And that's all the Emerging Cricket for this week. Thanks again for tuning in.